Well, you guys can be seated. We're going to take a look this evening. Uh, Revelation chapter 3. We are going to finish up the seven letters to the seven churches tonight. Uh, we're going to wrap up the final uh, letter, which means um, next week we're going to be uh, um, not going very far into chapter 4 because we're going to begin to broach the subject of the rapture. <clears throat> the rapture of the church and, and what the Word of God has to say about that. So, so those are some of the coming events we have coming. But first, we got to take a look at what the Lord has for us tonight. So Revelation chapter 3, let's pick it up in verse 14. We'll read through verse 22. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you might be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and that you anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. <coughs> Therefore, <clears throat> be zealous and repent. For behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. God, we just ask that you would bless your word tonight, that you give us eyes that see ears that hear, a heart ready to understand and apply your word, God, that, <coughs> that we would not be hard-hearted and dull of hearing. God, we pray that your word would accomplish exactly what it is sent to accomplish as we lift this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> wow. I'll try not to cough all night. But I might anyway. <coughs> you got some? Is it the dumb Ricolas like this? Okay. I'll try anything twice. Okay. So as we've been working our way through the seven letters to the seven churches, this is the culmination. The church of Laodicea. And as we look at them, one of the important things for us to realize and recognize as we look at the seven letters to the seven churches is most of them were not what they thought they were. That's an important concept to kind of chew on. For most of them, their impression of themselves was different than God's impression of them. A couple, God's impression of them was probably greater than their own. And a couple, God's impression of them was substantially less. Than their own. As we look at them, we see Ephesus was the church that had left her first love. They were zeal. They had a zeal. They had passion. But they had lost love. And remember when we look at Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. What does he tell us? That no, no matter what we do. Whether we do miracles. Have incredible knowledge. Speak every language known to man. Even the, the language of angels. If we don't have love, what good is it? No good, right? No good. So our motivation needs to be through love, right? The Bible says to speak the truth in love, right? Truth without love is brutal. Love without truth, worthless. You got to have them both, right? Speak the truth in love. So church at Ephesus left their first love. Smyrna. Probably wasn't feeling very well loved. They're the persecuted church, right? 
And Jesus' answer to them was not, Hey, you guys hang in there, and I'll take away the persecution. What he told them was, Your persecution is not eternal, and you need to hold on. Be faithful how long? Be faithful till death, and I will give you the crown of life. Right? Then after Smyrna, we looked at Pergamos. And Pergamos was a church of compromise. Little compromises with the world were creeping in and robbing them of their witness in the culture. We also saw Thyatira. And you kind of see it, that compromise leads to immorality within the church. And so Thyatira had immorality within the church. Sardis... They had a name that they were alive. But what is it that God said about them? You're really dead. Well, they thought they were living and vibrant. But God's word to them was, no, you guys are dead. You see, compromise leads to immorality. Immorality leads to apathy. And apathy is spiritual death. Nothing is happening. Nothing is going on. But then we have the church of Philadelphia, right? The church that only had a little strength. But they're the church before whom God gave the open door, right? I've opened up the door and they were faithful to walk through the door. Here's opportunity. We're walking through it. Here's an opportunity to do something. We're going to go do something. Even though all we have is what? A little strength. It wasn't they were massive. It wasn't they had all this power. They just had a little strength. And they were all told, hold fast. Hold on to Jesus. Then we come to Laodicea tonight. Laodicea was part of a tri-city area. The letter to the church at Colossae was part of the tri-city area. Laodicea, Colossae, the, the book of Colossians. Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis. They're all in the same area. A tri-city area. But they had this boast. That tri-city area had a boast of wealth. In around 60 A.D., there was a huge earthquake in the area, and a lot of cities were destroyed. And all those cities went to Rome for funding to rebuild, right? The, hey, the city's down. We need help. Not all that much different from when something happens here, right? When there's a, a, a horrible storm that comes in, or like the flooding we, we saw in New Orleans uh, several years back. Well, New Orleans can't fund that. What happens? Federal government comes in and and helps fund rebuild, right? Same thing, what we see here, they would all go to Rome, (laughs) except for Laodicea. Laodicea said, nah, we got this. They were wealthy enough to rebuild their city without anybody else's help. And that becomes a source of pride and a source of problem for them. Because they're used to doing it on their own. I would imagine they had a saying in Laodicea that went something like this. Man, we are able to just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. They might have even said something like, you know, the Lord helps those who help themselves. So, this was kind of the background of Laodicea. The background of what's going on. They were famous for a medical school that developed an eye salve that was supposed to help cure people with eye diseases. All of that kind of reads into this section when we take a look <clears throat> at the Lord's letter to them. In verse 14, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says, Remember, every letter starts with a description, self-identification in Jesus Christ to that church. And every one of those self-identifications that Jesus gives to those churches is something that they need to hold on to if they want to overcome whatever the issues are that they're facing. First he says, these things says the Amen. The Amen speaks to the immutability of God. That He doesn't change. That That you don't have to catch God on a good day. Right? You know what I mean? You know that I, I, if I wanted something at home, I had to catch mom on a good day. A bad day, the answer was always going to be what? Didn't matter if it was, no matter what, it didn't matter what the question was. The answer was going to be no, it's a bad day. 
Because my mother was not immutable. She passed that on to me. So Kathy tells everybody on staff at the church, if, you, if you're going to ask Jackie for something, just realize the first answer will always be no. And then you just keep asking. You eventually can wear him down to a yes. <coughs> God's not like that. God says his yeses are yes and his noes are noes and it doesn't vacillate, right? God doesn't vacillate. He knows. In fact, the word says, 2 Corinthians 1, but as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. Doesn't it, What he's saying is our word to you wasn't kind of meandering between two opinions. Um, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in Christ, or in him, are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. God doesn't vacillate. God doesn't vacillate. What does amen mean? It means so be it. So be it. If God has decreed it, if God has said it, that's how it's going to be. That's how, it was, that's how it's going to be. God doesn't change. He's the amen. He's the amen. The second thing, not just his immutability, but we see his reliability. What's the next thing? The faithful and true witness, right? These things says the amen, the faithful and true witness. He is faithful and he is true. Some witnesses will tell the truth, but they might not show up for court. They're truthful, but they're not faithful. Some people will show up, but they won't tell the truth. They're faithful, but not truthful. Jesus is both faithful and true. He'll be there, and he'll speak the truth. Psalm 89 Verse 34 says, My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever. His throne like the sun before me, it will be established forever like the moon. Even the faithful witness in the sky. The faithful witness in the sky. Basically God says, as long as there is the sun and the moon then it's going to be true. These things are going to happen. I'm going to be watching out over David. So what's he telling Laodicea? <clears throat> I'm, the so, I'm the so be it. I'm the amen. What I, what, what's, what I have decreed, what I have established, my yeses are yeses, my noes are noes, not wavering back and forth. I'm faithful and true. I'll be there and I'll tell the truth. I'll share the truth. In John chapter 3, Verse 11, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. And if I have told you earthly things, you do not believe. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He's making that correlation, trying to pass across. Here's my truthful witness. Here's the truthful witness, but you won't hear me. Jesus speaking. In verse 32, the same chapter, he says, And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. When Jesus came and taught and preached the kingdom of God was come, the world didn't flock to receive that witness. Did it mean it wasn't true? What was being, what was happening? What was happening is God had hardened the hearts of the nation of Israel. Isn't that what the word says? He put up blinders before their eyes. Why? So that he could bring redemption. Because man can't do it on his own. So he spoke in parables. So he, he showed them things that they couldn't quite comprehend. There were some. That God had given to Jesus, the disciples and several others who were following him, who were going to establish a church post-cross and resurrection. But up until that time, the world didn't recognize him as faithful and true. But after 
What happened on the day of Pentecost? The same guys who were shouting crucify him were shouting, I repent and believe. Because now there was provision. God made provision through his son. He's faithful and true. <laughs> so we see, is he amen? Faithful and true. We see his immutability, his reliability, and then his priority. What's his priority? He is the beginning of the creation of God. Now a lot of people get confused. This is the word RK. RK. The beginning of the creation of God. One of the ways I, I, I try to express this, when we read it in English, there's a couple of ways we can look at it. Like he's the first one created. He's the beginning. Or the way that the scripture intends it. He's the cause. He began creation. He is the beginning. He's where it all starts. The word RK means first in, in priority, first in place, ruler or cause. So he is the, in fact, if you have an NIV Bible, the NIV Bible says he is the ruler of all creation. He's the cause. How do we know that? Well, we're looking at Revelation. Whenever we look at Revelation, we need to understand that's the last book that came to the Bible, right? It, it was written in around 92 to 95 AD. So most of the Bible was already composed and, and put together. And we have other writings from John, like John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Don't we? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, face to face with God, and the Word was God. And what, is, what else does he say? The Word created. Nothing was made except what was made by the Word. To Colossians, to the church in Colossae, right next to Laodicea, Paul wrote a letter. In Colossians chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 15, you can kind of get the sense of this word, arche, for beginning. He is the image of the invisible God. Remember, he has the DNA of God. God's DNA. He's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn. What's the next word? Over. Does it say firstborn in? No, it says firstborn what? Over. The word firstborn is prototokos. It means first in priority. He is the one in control of all creation. Now you say, I don't know if I, I agree with that, Jackie. Well, keep reading. What's it say next? For by him, how many things were created? Does all really mean all? Does all just mean some things? Everything else. That's not what it says, does it? It says, for by him, all things were created. What about the things that were created in heaven? Oh, he created those, right? Isn't that what it says? By him, all things were created that are in heaven and are on earth. Visible and invisible thrones or dominions or principalities or powers those are ranks of angels all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things he has the preeminence the priority he's above it all i don't know if i still buy that he is before all things and in him all things consist literally he's holding everything together he holds all the pieces together he is the head of the body, the church, look at the next phrase, who is the beginning. Same word. He is the arche. Who is the cause? The prime mover. The first cause. The beginning. He is the, the beginning. He is what has started it all. That's what he's laying out for us. The firstborn from the dead. Same word, prototokos. Firstborn of the dead. He's not the first person ever rose from the dead, right? We know that. But he, there is something different about him. He rose from the dead and never died again. He's the prototokos. The first of the resurrection. The first of the resurrection. That in all things he might have what? Preeminence. Preeminence. What is the theme of that whole section? The preeminence of Christ, that he's over all things, that he's before all things, that he's the beginning of all things. Same words, same phrase, same context that we find ourselves looking at. The priority here in Revelation chapter 3 verse 14. Look at it again. These things says the amen. 
the faithful and true witness, the beginning or cause of all of creation. This is the message that Jesus has to them. <laughs> he goes on in verse 15. I know your works. What's the point? Does God know your deal? Seven times he said that phrase to seven churches. I know what's going on in you. He knows what's going on in Calvary Chapel Buell. He knows what's going on in me. He knows what's going on in you. He knows what's happening. So we want to listen to the things that Jesus knows. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Wow. That's pretty harsh, right? If we took a test, before we came into church, I wonder how many would describe our walk with Christ as lukewarm. And if we do, Christ says, you make me sick. That's pretty rugged, no? He says, I, I would that you were hot or cold. Now, a lot of people want to relate the concept of hot or cold to zeal. In other words, if you're hot, you're on fire for the Lord, really going after it. And if you're cold, you're not doing anything with the Lord. But, but I don't think that's the point he's making at all. In this, in this Tri-City area, they had a lot of hot springs. And Laodicea was famous for one thing. They were right in the middle. So nothing ever got to them hot. And nothing ever got to them cold. And all of their water was very high in mineral content. You guys ever drink really thick mineral water? Yeah, how about lukewarm, really thick mineral water? Yeah, you just say, I'm not that thirsty. I think I'd rather suck on sand. So they were famous for having water nobody wanted to drink. So when God gives a message to them, and He says, I would that you were hot or cold, He's describing something in them. He's describing the fact that there is indifference. There's a lot of argument over lukewarm. Is it professing someone who says they're a believer, but they're not really a believer, and that's why they're lukewarm? Or is it someone who is possessing, but just in a funk? And really, there's good arguments both ways. So... And I don't really know that it makes that much of a difference which, which camp you want to sit in. Because no matter which camp you're in, is lukewarm something we want to be? Do we want to describe ourselves as vomit from the mouth of our Lord and Savior? Yeah, so a pretty safe bet that regardless of professing or possessing, we don't want to be what he is puking up. Right? Nobody wants to describe that. So, how's your walk with the Lord? Oh, no, I'm puke. <laughs> Nobody? Nobody wants to describe it like that. So here, the Lord of the lampstand says to the church of Laodicea, just like your own water supply, you're lukewarm and you're disgusting to my taste. I don't want to be that. I don't want to be described as disgusting to the Lord. I wish... That you were either fresh, life-giving water. Cool, refreshing water. Brings refreshment. Or I wish that you were nice, hot, healing water. But you're not either one of those things. It's disgusting. So we don't want to be in a place like that. Matthew 7.21, remember the scary scripture says, <clears throat> Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is, belongs to Christ, right? Not everyone who can, who can just simply stand before Him. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, by the way, what was the will? Je Jesus was asked, what must I do to do the works of God? What do I have to do? To do the will of the Father. What must I do? Jesus told him, believe in the Son. 
That's the work you have to do. Believe. And every time we talk about that phrase, you need to understand that word believe is not a a moment in time. It is a continuous action. It means believing. Keep on believing. Why do you think God says over and over and over again, hold fast. Hang on. Because that's what he wants of his church. That's what he wants them to do. So first, you're indifferent. You're not hot or cold. You're not refreshing or healing. You're lukewarm. Then he says in verse 17, (coughs) Because, why are you lukewarm? Because you don't understand who you are. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and I don't need anything. And you don't know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. What made this church lukewarm? What made these people lukewarm was the idea that they had it all together. Calvary Chapel Buell is the first church of the broken. If you're not broke, you're not going to like it here very much. We are broken people. We are the misfit toys. We're the ones who are sinners saved by grace. We don't got it all together. And you come here for 15 minutes, somebody's going to do something, you're going to say, man, I can't believe that guy calls himself a Christian. And I'm going I'm, I'm to say, I don't know what you're talking about, because that's a perfect description of every one of the disciples in the Bible. Jesus never said, you know, them disciples are a bunch of boneheads, I, I'm done with them. They don't measure up. That's not what he said. He's long-suffering, isn't he? He knows that the life of a believer is the life of repentance. Look, if you don't need to repent, like at least one of our presidential candidates, (laughs) so I might be a cheap shot, but (coughs) repentance is a requirement of a believer. It should be part of our life. It should be part of who we are. Not that that's our excuse, well, I don't ever have to work on me because everybody just has to accept me because I'm just broken. No, it's not that excuse. It's the realization that I'm miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That I'm not rich. That I do need somebody. I need you. I need the people around me. I need Jesus Christ. I need people. I need the Lord. But the Laodiceans, they didn't need anybody. Pride was a problem for them. Ultimately, they don't have a sense of what's going on. What did they think they were? I'm rich, wealthy, and I don't need anything. Rich, wealthy, I don't need anything. What was the reality? Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Wretched. I'm going to take a look at each one of these real quick. Wretched. The idea of wretched. In Romans 7.24, Paul declares... Oh, wretched man that I am. Is that how we look at ourselves? The Apostle Paul wrote 13 books of the Bible. And he called himself wretched. If we don't think that there's still wretchedness in us, brokenness in us, sin nature in us that needs to be dealt with every single day, then we are elevating ourselves above the Apostle Paul. Who after writing 13 books of the Bible says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This is not the beginning of his ministry, by the way. Closer to the end. So did Paul struggle with his brokenness for his whole life? Sure he did. And he didn't lie to himself and say, I'm good, man. I got it all together. I've I've got it figured out. I don't do all them things all them other people do no more. I'm square. No, what did he say? I'm wretched. I'm wretched. Second thing, miserable. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Same word, miserable. 
miserable. If, if Jesus ain't real, if my faith ain't real, man's misery. Misery. He says, look, I'm wretched. <laughs> I'm wretched. And I need to realize, I need to recognize, there's misery in this world. There's misery in this world. But I don't just have Christ here. Right? Christ is not just for this life. Christ is eternal. Goes beyond. There's more than this. There's more than this. And holding on to and clinging to that wretched, miserable, poor. The word poor means totally destitute. Means I don't got nothing I bring to the table. When I stand before God, I am poor. Not rich. I'm poor. Only in Christ can I be anything. Apart from Christ, I am nothing. Matthew 5 3, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Do you know that's how you come to the table of God? I don't have nothing to give. He makes me. So I come to the table destitute, totally lacking. But Laodicea said, I'm rich, wealthy, I don't need nobody, I don't need nothing. Not only were they wretched, miserable, poor, but they were also blind. That's a scary thing to be, isn't it? Blind, they can't see. Unseeing. Unseeing can't comprehend the things that are going on. In Romans chapter 2, <coughs> verse 17, it says, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and you rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know His will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. You are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish. A teacher of babes, having a form of knowledge and truth in the law. Now, Jesus is, is laying out for Paul. Paul's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. And he starts piling all this stuff on. Ah, you guys got all this stuff together. You got all this stuff together. But you don't hear it anymore. You don't hear it anymore. You think, I'm there. Look at the questions he asked next. You, therefore, who teach another, don't you teach yourself? Is the word of God that is spoken only for somebody else? Or is it for me? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who hate idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God? By breaking the law. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. As it is written. That's the description that Paul gives of what it is to be blind. You can no longer see that the word of God is that applying into you. It's always the word of God is a flashlight. Right? You take it and you point it. Let it get you, let it get you, let it get you. But how's the, Bible, how's the Bible describe the Word of God? In James, it's a mirror. It's a mirror. What's it show me? Me. Who's it speaking to? Me. Any message I've ever taught or preached, what happened? It came to me first. God's got to deal with me first. My heart, my, my grief, my nonsense, my whatever. And it can't ever come out from any other place than having first dealt with me. But if I don't let it do that, I'm blind. What was the last one? Naked. What are we supposed to be clothed in? White garments, right? So if you're naked, what does that mean? That can't be good. Yeah, you guys ever have those dreams where, where you're out somewhere and all of a sudden it's, you realize I'm naked? <coughs> That's not ever good, right? You get to work and you're doing all the work stuff and maybe you've got a shirt on and you look down and realize, oh, I didn't put no pants on today. <laughs> yeah, that's bad, right? That's bad. Look, they had no wedding garment. What do we know from Matthew 22? Being saved means you are wearing what? Wedding garment. If you didn't have your wedding garment, what happened? You're cast out from the feast 
where there is fire, brimstone, and gnashing of teeth. That doesn't sound like good stuff, right? So we need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But what's he say to Laodicea? You guys are naked. You guys are naked. That's not good. Revelation 19.7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the linen, the fine linen, are the righteous acts of the saints. It was granted unto her to wear white. Who gave her the right? God does. Put on your wedding garment. But Laodicea was running around. The emperor had no clothes. They're running around naked, but I don't need anything. I'm good. Everything's, everything's great. I've got it all together. I've got it all solved. I'm a guide to the blind. But they were running around naked. The emperor has no clothes. The eternal creator and God of the universe says to Laodicea, you're not clothed in white. And you don't know it. That's a scary place to be, right? Scary place to be. So what's his instruction? What does he say? Let's look at verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you might be rich. So first he deals with the fact that they're poor, right? You guys think you're rich, but you're not. You need to come to me. Recognize your spiritual need, that you have a need only Jesus can meet. No amount of money is going to make it okay. Doesn't matter. In fact, it might make it worse. Because you may place your trust there. That you have a need only Jesus can meet. So he says, you got to come to me and buy gold from me. And where's that gold going to be put? In the fire. The refiner's fire, right? So it's pure gold. Burns out all the garbage. How's he get the garbage out of us? Trials, man. He turns on the heat. And the trials purge us. And leave us with a recognition that I need Jesus. I need him. I got to have what he has for me. I need his gold refined in the fire. 1 Peter 1 says, in this you greatly rejoice, for <clears throat> though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. For what purpose? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested, how? By fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation or the revealing of Jesus Christ. What's the issue? Pride and self holds them back. I don't need anyone. I don't need nothing. Jesus says, you got to come to me and buy gold from me. Otherwise, you really don't have anything. You really don't recognize that you don't have the riches you need. We need to recognize our spiritual need. Second, we need spiritual clothing, right? What's he say next? Not only come and buy gold refined in the fire, but then white garments that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness May not be revealed. He says, you got to come to me for your clothes. Isn't that exactly what we do? He who knew no sin became our sin sacrifice so that we could become the righteousness of God. He provides. What did he do for Adam and Eve when they sinned? They tried to make their own clothes. What happened? Well, not so good, right? They sew fig leaves together and it's just junky. It's not working, itchy, doesn't cover. What's God do? He clothes them. He clothes them. In animal skins. Where did he get those from? The first sacrifice. The first lamb that was slain. For the sin of the people. So that they could be clothed. Just like you and I are clothed. In the righteousness of God. They needed to come and get their clothing. They needed to have that. It says in Revelation chapter 7 verse 13. 
Then one of the elders answered and said to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? And I said to them, Sir, you know. So he said, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white. How? In the blood of the Lamb. Come, let us reason together, for though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be whiter than snow, as white as wool. God provides our garments. He provides our riches, spiritual riches, that we can only have satisfied in Jesus Christ. And He provides our clothing. We can only be clothed in white through Jesus Christ. And then He opens our eyes. He says, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you might see. You're blind, you don't know what you're doing. Psalm 119 verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I might see wondrous things from your law. That verse, I pray every time I read the word. Open my eyes that I might see wondrous things from your law. God opens the eyes of the blind, doesn't he? God opens our eyes. We need to have our eyes opened by him. Jesus said in John 9, 39, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see. And those who say they see may be made blind. What's the difference? Do you recognize your state? Because apart from Christ, I'm blind. I can't see. Nothing makes sense to me the way it ought to make sense. In Christ, He makes me to see because I recognize my condition. The Laodiceans said, I'm rich. I got everything I need. I don't need anything. But God said, you're miserable. You're poor. You need to come to Jesus for what He can give. You're, not, you're naked. You're not clothed. You're blind. You don't see. We need to go to receive these things from God. He's the one that shows us the way. He's the one that clothes us. He's the one who cares for us. But the church of Laodicea didn't have that. They had reached a point where they didn't need Jesus anymore. Now what kind of church doesn't need Jesus anymore? Not a very good one, right? And then look at this. Now, he, he grants spiritual vision, gives them the clothes, gives them the riches. But look at the last phrase. As many as I love, what's he say? I rebuke and chasten. Because I love you, I will tell you the truth. We don't, we don't think that way here. We think if you love me, lie to me. Don't we? Man, whatever you do, don't tell me the truth. But that's not what the Word of God tells us. No, the Word of God doesn't tell us to share the truth without love. It says share the truth in love. Share the truth in love. We don't abide by what the Word of God says. Over and over and over again, we don't abide by what the Word of God says. The biggest problem, number one problem in the church forever has been when there's problem between brothers and we won't go talk to our brother. Why won't we go talk to him? Because we don't love them. Because God said, Jesus said, whom I rebuke and chasten, I love. I love them because I love them. I don't want to leave them in this state. And if that was our heart more often, we would have a lot more peace in our relationships, in our families, in our church family, between churches, the whole gig. If we would just sit down with one another and be honest because we honestly love one another and care for one another. Jesus said, the reason I'm telling you this is because I love you. I love you. And then Hebrews 12.6 has something interesting to say. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges who? What's that word? Every son? Whom I love, I rebuke and chasten. So I would say, Laodicea belongs to God. We're not talking about lost people, we're talking about messed up people. 
their sons or daughters that God loves. And so he tells them the truth. For what purpose? That they could be filled with might and the power or the spirit that they need to have so they can be effective. Because right now, they're not effective at all. What's the next phrase? He rebukes us and chastens us because he loves us. And what does he want us to do? Respond. How do we respond to the rebuke of God? Repent. And we got to repent. We got to repent. What's the next part of the verse say? The next part of the verse says, Therefore be zealous, passionate, and repent. Repent. What is it that God's looking for from me when I recognize I'm off track, I messed up, I screwed up? What's He looking for from me? That I bow my knee before God and I repent. And that word repent is an interesting word because that word is calling for a decisive act of repentance. Repentance is not saying, Lord, I'm wrong, you're right. Repentance is saying, Lord, I'm wrong and I'm turning away. The opposite of repentance is stand on the big pile of poop like the cows do and say, I'm the king of the mountain. This is my mountain. I'm king of the mountain. God says in repentance, I'm getting off the mountain. I want his. I'm mine. I want out. I'm changing direction. Changing direction. The change of direction is always the same. Repentance is always the same. It's a change of direction from whatever, that part can be different, to this part's always the same. Jesus. That I'm surrendering whatever that thing is, my pride, my, what I don't know, whatever the thing is, I'm surrendering that, and, and I'm replacing that with Jesus. I need Jesus. I need you. I'm not rich. I, don't, I have need of you. I need you to get me through every day. To get me through all the garbage. To get me through all the stuff. I need to repent. Turn away from my whatever. And i got to grab a hold and hold fast to Jesus Christ. And that's a life. That's not a once. That's a life. I am going to spend my life from now till I see Jesus face to face. Learning to turn away from stuff in my life that God says, eh eh, and turn to Christ. That Christ is my satisfaction, not that thing. That Christ is my satisfaction. He's my treasure, not this thing. That I turn from whatever that thing is. I don't even care what it is. You might even say it's a good thing. Doesn't matter. He calls all men everywhere to repent, turn, cling to Christ. Turn from, cling to Christ. Two, that's our response to him. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. In this church, he's outside. (coughs) That's not a good thing, right? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. His invitation. We see his position. Behold, I stand at the door. I knock. I'm outside. We see his plea. I'm trying to get in. Right? I want a relationship. I want you. That's that's God's movement. He's knocking. What's our part? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. Opens the door. Man, is Jesus inside the body? Or is he outside? He's got to be inside. He's got to be central, don't he? Individually, is Jesus inside or outside? If he's outside, you need to open a door and let him in. He needs to be inside. He needs to be in that entity which bears his name. What's his promise? I will come in to him and dine with him. If you open, I'll come in. If you open, I'll come in. If you open, I'll come in. So God makes a promise. If you open the door, I'll come in. And I'll dine with you. There's intimacy. There's a relationship. There's intimacy. The 
The, the greatest form of intimacy in the Middle Eastern culture was to dine together. So when Jesus said, I'll come in and eat with you, he's like, man, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna break bread together. It'll be a serious relationship. You and I together. <coughs> next we see his authority. Look at the next verse. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Who's going to grant it? Jesus is. How can he do that? Because he's Yahweh. I will grant to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man ascends up into heaven. According to Psalm 110, he takes his seat on the throne of God. God says, Yahweh says to Yahweh, sit here. Until I make your enemies your footstool. Sit here until I bring the world to submission to Christ. What's the Bible say? That every knee will and every tongue will. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Sit here until I make. But what's the, what is it that he's saying? He's saying, look, I've got thrones for you. In the next couple chapters, we're going to see 24 thrones sat on by 24 elders. And I'm going to make the case that the 24 elders are the church. And that the church is in heaven starting in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. And John's going to argue with me, but it's okay. I let him all the time. <coughs> I don't mind. I've told John multiple times, look, John, if you want to be wrong, I don't mind. It's okay. <coughs> but one day he's going to know I'm right. And I'm going to enjoy that conversation. I hope I'm right too. And I reserve the right to change my eschatology as need arises. But as I look at what the word says, that's, that's what I think is going on. I think the song of the redeemed is a song we sing to Jesus Christ. For you have redeemed us from every tribe, nation, and tongue. The work that God has done. What's this promise? Man, I'm going to make you to sit on the throne. Matthew 19, 28. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, in the regeneration, in the, in the resurrection, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, doing what? Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Scripture also says we're going to judge angels. Luke 1, 32. The angel talking to Mary about the, the Son. He will be great, and He will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. I can't wait to that day. To he who overcomes. Who is, is he who overcomes the word declares. But he who believes. Jesus is the Christ. The son of the living God. Faith. Seven letters to seven churches. They all have application to us. May we fulfill the last verse. Let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me and let's pray.